Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 1st, 2015, and my guest is William McCaskill, professor of philosophy at Lincoln College, Oxford, co-founder of two nonprofits, 80,000 Hours and Giving What We Can, and author of Doing Good Better, Effective Altruism and How You Can Make a Difference, and finally, co-founder of the Effective Altruism Movement. Well, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about the ideas in your book, Doing Good Better, and the whole concept of effective altruism. But first, I want to give a shout out to journalist Mark Gunther, whose article on effective altruism, uh, which we'll link to, got me interested in the idea. So I want to start with the principles of effective altruism. You list five. What are they? Yeah, so effective altruism is about using your time and money as effectively as possible to make the world a better place and taking a scientific approach to doing so. And in the book, I list these five principles that help you to think in the way that effective altruists tend to think. Uh, And as I'm sure your audience will notice, they bear a lot of similarities to some core concepts in um, economic thinking. So the first one is just to think about the impact of your actions, and in particular, the impact in terms of improvements on people's well-being. So ask how many people benefit and by how much, where the idea is that if you can benefit more people or if you can benefit them by a greater amount, then that's a better action to do if you're giving to charity, for example. Uh, the second uh, key question is, is this the most effective thing I can do? Uh, because there's a lot of talk about making a difference when we're trying to do good, but not so much focus on trying to make the most difference. And if you look at the distribution of impact among different sorts of social programs, you find that the very best social programs are far, far better than even merely very good ones. So that means it's crucial not to just try and do some amount of good, but to try to do the most good you can. The third question is, is this area neglected? And that's bringing in the idea of diminishing returns, which again is crucial, I think, if we want to have the biggest impact we can. So for example, there's a lot of uh, focus on domestic issues um, within charity, um, especially US education or domestic poverty. Uh, But if you look at just the scale of uh, an extremity of global inequality and global poverty, you can do far, far more to benefit the very poor um, in poor countries simply because they have so much less and the very lowest hanging fruit in terms of improvements to people's lives still haven't been taken, like distributing bed nets or deworming children. The fourth question is, what would have happened otherwise? So, In order to do good or make a difference, it's not enough to just have a causal impact. You need to think about the difference between what you have done and what would have happened otherwise. An example of this is if you become a doctor, let's say, and you might think, oh, well, I'm saving lives every single week. Uh, But that's not enough to ensure you're actually having a big impact. You've got to think, well, if I wasn't the person doing this, what would be happening instead? And In fact, someone else would be in your position. They'd be doing very similar things, um, performing those life-saving surgeries or life-saving treatments. 
And so the impact you're having as a doctor is just the difference between what the, the way the world is given that you become a doctor and what it would have been like had someone else been in your shoes. And then the final question is, what are the chances of success and how good would success be? And that's bringing in the concept of expected value. Uh, and that's crucial because in the book, I do talk a lot about concrete, measurable ways of doing good that are often backed by randomized control trials, like deworming, like distributing bed nets. But that's certainly not the only way to do good. You can certainly potentially make a very large change by focusing on more speculative, more difficult to quantify um, uh, sorts of activities, like trying to make systemic or policy change. And there, I think the approach you should take is still try to be rational and reflective about this. And instead, just look at, okay, if this were to be successful, if this policy change was successful, for example, how good would that be? And actually try to you know, get an estimate for that. And then just try and get at least some sort of estimate on, yeah, what's the chance of me actually being able to bring this about? And then you multiply that low probability by that very large amount of value. And at least sometimes that means it'll be even better to pursue this uh, more uncertain path over something that would be more concrete and more certain to make a benefit, but a benefit of smaller magnitude. So to illustrate the principles, let's start with uh, the two examples that you start in the book with, the play pump and uh, deworming, uh, the latter being now a little more controversial than when it started. But the play pump is such a fantastic uh, example, a tragic example of um, – good intentions, not uh, paying off as well as one might hope. So talk about what went wrong with the play pump and, and what's the potential, at least, for deworming. The play pump uh, came to was invented in the 1990s and really got a lot of fame in uh, the 2000s. And it's uh, a way of providing clean water to um, the people of a, vi of a village in a poor country like South Africa. And the idea is it's a children's merry-go-round that doubles as a pump. So children will play on this merry-go-round, and using the power of children's play, that will pump clean water from the ground up, and, up into a tank, which can, uh, people can then draw from. And so it's this very exciting, innovative-seeming idea. And the media really loved it. They said they loved the opportunity to pun on headlines like, pumping water as child's play, it's the magic roundabout. Uh, and it got a huge amount of attention. So it won, um, I know. Uh, it's just, it's and, so, well, just so appealing. Yeah. You can see why. Well, exactly. Yeah, it just seems like a win-win. The children get this, their first playground amenity. Um, the it's a free lunch. Village gets, yeah, exactly. It seems like that. And it even won the World Bank uh, market, Development Marketplace Award. Uh, Jay-Z was a supporter. Um, the first lady at the time, Laura Bush, um, announced that they were going to donate uh, $12 million by USAID um, with a further $5 million from the Case Foundation uh, to roll out play pumps across the country. So it was getting a huge amount of attention. Bill Clinton called it a wonderful innovation. Uh, the issue, though, is just that it was actually, in practice, a terrible idea. It was a very sexy idea, um, but one that was just very unfunctional. So unlike a normal merry-go-round, which spins freely once uh, you give it su sufficient momentum, this one required constant force uh, in order to pump clean water from the ground. That would mean the children would get very tired very quickly. Um, some would fall off, some would break limbs, some would vomit from the spinning. 
Uh, but most importantly, just they wouldn't want to play on this pump all day, every day. And that meant that if people wanted uh, water, it was normally left up to the elderly women of the village to push this pump um, all hours of the day, a task which they found kind of undignified and demeaning. Uh, the pumps would also often break down. They were supposed to have maintenance numbers, but um, so people could phone if there was any problems, but uh, that didn't happen either. But the crucial thing was just that the communities hadn't actually been asked if they wanted these play pumps. And the pumps often replaced traditional uh, hand pumps that were a third of the cost, um, much easier to maintain, and pumped several times as much water. So they were much less sexy, Zimbabwe hand pump, but much more functional for the needs um, of the local community. Uh, and thankfully, these problems were noticed. Um, investigations by a couple of different organizations, including the UN, um, pointed out these flaws. And then there was a, another big media discussion. Um, and again, thankfully, the Case Foundation acknowledged, in, uh, what's actually quite a rare event, acknowledged that it made a big mistake and withdrew further funding. Uh, and the play pump organization still does continue, but in a much diminished capacity now. So that's a, an example of altruism, you could say run amok, because the effectiveness wasn't, wasn't um, not enough attention was paid to initially and the effectiveness of the, of the scheme. Yeah, it shows that good intentions aren't good enough. Uh, it's not merely enough to think, oh, I want to do good. I mean, I think everyone here was well-intentioned, but you need to be careful. You need to be reflective about what you're actually doing um, in, if you're actually wanting to make a big difference. And now let's turn to deworming, which um, has had a lot of excitement around it and some a bit of pushback lately. But um, talk about deworming and, and yeah. what, what happened there. And yeah, so the deworming is a contrast story. So uh, I tell about Michael Kramer uh, going to Kenya and working with a charity called ICS that provided uh, kind of educational programs for local schools. And he suggested to this charity, well, um, you're doing this stuff, but do you know that it really works? Um, why don't we test it? Just use the same methods that are used in um, experimental methods that use in all other areas of science. Uh, and again, kind of unusually, the charity was like, okay. So they took the program I ICS was doing, um, take, took seven schools as a control group. So they didn't do anything to those schools, but just monitored the educational performance of the children there, and then implemented the program uh, in seven other schools in order to see what sort of impact it was having. And now, uh, they did find that the package that ICS was delivering did have a positive impact on educational outcomes. But ICS were doing uh, a variety of different things. So they thought, okay, we're going to test lots of these different components um, one by one to see what actually has an impact. And what they found was that some things that would seem like obviously they were going to do good actually had no discernible impact at all. So distributing textbooks, for example. Um, they tested that. Most schools have about one textbook per classroom, so you'd think obviously providing a textbook um, or providing more books would improve uh, learning among students. But they tested it. They found uh, no impact, in fact. Um, no difference in terms of educational outcomes. They did the same with flip charts. They did the same with 
um, class sizes, and again, just found uh, no evidence that these were actually improving the education of uh, the people they were trying to help. So again, showing just actually even things that seem like they're great ideas, when you actually investigate it, maybe turn out not to be. Then they tried something quite different, something we've, most people in the West have never even heard of, which is uh, deworming school children. So children have a, vari um, a variety of intestinal worms. In fact, these intestinal worms affect over a billion people worldwide. Um, we don't know about them um, in countries like the US because they were eliminated from countries that, uh, like the US in the 50s. Uh, and they don't kill as many people as HIV, AIDS, or tuberculosis, or malaria. Uh, and again, that's why we might not have heard of them. They do make many, many children's, children sick. Uh, and you can treat these worms for only about 50 cents per child. So you can just, the drugs you treat them have no side effects. So you can just roll them out among uh, all, kind of all the schools you want to treat. Uh, and you just treat ev absolutely everyone. Um, and that costs about 50 cents per child and will cure them of worms for one year. And they tested this. It's normally thought of as a health program. Uh, but when they put this to the test in kind of landmark study, they found it was one of the most uh, cost-effective educational programs. So one reason why children weren't attending school was simply because they were sick, they were lethargic, um, because they uh, suffered from these intestinal worms. Uh, and then when the when this was followed up with, kind of 12 years later, the, people, the children who'd been dewormed, now adults, were working significantly more hours and were earning significantly more as well. So it did seem to have this long-run impact on uh, productivity um, and earnings. And it's an incredible so, low-lying fruit because it's so cheap, right? It's, it's, the intervention is so uh, – and it's, it's a simple intervention. You don't have to – it's not a lot of follow-up. You don't have to watch to make sure that the protocol is being followed, some complicated thing. So it, it seems like a fabulous improvement. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, exception, it's exceptionally cheap. It's exceptionally simple. You're using drugs that were developed in the 50s and are off-patent. Uh, you know, it's the sort of thing where in a rich country, this would have just been trivially funded decades ago um, and, in fact, um, in fact, was in the U.S., uh, and that kind of that shows the lesson here is just we don't we shouldn't make presumptions about what's going to be having a really big impact. Play pumps seem really sexy, seemed really exciting, like it really work. The thought you'd have about deworming is just so. Grace Hollister, the uh, CEO of Deworm the World Initiative, described uh, deworming as the least sexy intervention there is, and I think that's probably right. It's not something you'd naturally get very excited about. It's not even but pleasant to talk about for most it's people. It's not even really pleasant <laughs> to talk about. It's kind of gross, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I can't help but point out, though, that we did a, uh, an econ-talk episode with uh, Velasquez Manoff talking about the consequences of de possible consequences of deworming in, in at least the in some parts of the world, that it has perhaps led to an increase in autoimmune uh, disorders. But for yeah. most people, it's a very good thing. Yeah, and the thing is, the book's called Doing Good Better, and one of the connotations I want to convey there is that we're never doing good perfectly. Um, and so there has been a recent debate about deworming, which we can go into if you like. Um, well, I, I, think to, it was, I think it was a bit overblown. but I want to get into idea, it, actually, yeah. because I think one of my concerns about effective altruism, on the surface, uh, there's nothing to be um, to object to in the idea of, in the concept. Um, 
it's a fabulous idea, the idea to spend your money well rather than just spend it on what appears to be a good cause. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea of, of bringing data and science into how you do that seems like a good idea. And the challenge, I think, uh, we will get into this thing through the through the entire conversation, is, is that it's not as straightforward as it might first appear. So the original enthusiasm for deworming came from RCTs, from randomized control trials, which have a scientific aura about them. Uh, there was a backlash, though. The recent analysis of deworming by uh, the Cochrane group has found that its impact is maybe quite small, certainly smaller than, than we originally had thought. And then there's uh, been some pushback against that. So where do you – tell us where you think we're at on it. Yeah, so uh, I think the idea that the impact is smaller than the initial buzz I think is correct. Um, however, I still think it's one of the best um, development programs there is, especially for an individual donor. Uh, and that's, in general, just statistically speaking, that's actually what you should should expect if you have these like initial results that just show that something is just exceptionally good, then you should expect to regress back towards the mean um, in light of kind of further evidence. Uh, there was uh, the, the analyses recently of this uh, Kramer and Miguel study, um, the kind of initial landmark study, and they were blown a little bit out of proportion, I think. There were... Uh, the analysis done and some of the coverage was saying, oh, well, this debunks the case for deworming. And uh, that was kind of overblown. Really, there was some, the analysis, there were like uh, some mistakes in the original analysis. Arguably, the effect was like a bit smaller than uh, initially claimed, uh, but certainly not anything that really undermines the case for deworming. And uh, in the landscape of different sorts of development programs, uh, deworming still seems exceptionally good. And I think one thing we should do is, you know, still use sanity checks as well. So the thought with deworming is it's this very simple thing. It costs 50 cents per child. Um, and there is at least a significant amount of evidence showing that it does improve earnings and productivity, you know, in the in the long run, which is also something that there's normally very little evidence about with respect to development programs. Uh, it seems like just a very good use of money. And then there's a question just how good exactly is that? And then that's just a kind of great area of debate. Maybe it's like, should you be funding bed nets and so on? Um, and this isn't a hard science like physics. It does mean that there's going to have to be judgment calls along the way. Uh, but uh, the case is still just very strong, at least compared to different sorts of development programs. I guess the question is, as, we'll get, as you talked about at the end of the book and we'll get to later, is compared to other choices you might make with your charitable giving, um, I, I want to introduce a fact here that was a, probably my favorite mm -hmm. fact in the book. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of interesting things in the book. A lot of thought-provoking ideas about how to spend your time and money. But this one's particularly uh, grabs your attention. Uh, to get into the global 1%, rather than, say, the U.S. 1%, which gets a lot mm -hmm. of conversation. To get into the global 1%, uh, you have to earn a little over $50,000. Uh, if you earn over $28,000 a year, you're in the top 5%. And the implication of that is that you can do a lot of good uh, without that much sacrifice on your part. There's a lot of people who are really 
having a tough life uh, and you can help them. The question is, is that true? Now, you suggest the impact, the potential impact is very large. So I want you to talk about the 100 times multiplier, what you mean by that and, and why you think the impact can be so large. Yeah, I think there's a couple of reasons for thinking that the impact you can have through well-targeted donations to the poorest people in the world is absolutely huge. Uh, the first is this idea of diminishing returns. So we can look at how much do the very poor earn compared to us and look at different sorts of estimates of how additional money turns into um, increases in well-being. And approximately, it seems like uh, inc uh, well-being seems to vary with the log of income. That means any percentage increase uh, in earnings generates the same increase in happiness. So wherever you are in terms of income, doubling your income uh, gives you the same increase in well-being. And that might not be exactly right, but it's at least approximately right. Uh, now combine that with two further facts. Firstly is that for a typical member of the United States, someone earning the, about the median um, income, you're about 40 times richer than the poorest billion people in the world. So these are people earning uh, less than $1.50 per day. And where you need to get really clear on what that number means. That means what $1.50 would buy in the United States. Um, in financial terms, that's about 60 cents in somewhere like Kenya or India. Uh, so that number already takes into account the fact that money goes further overseas. And the second thing is that all, it's called it's consumption expenditure. So it already takes into account uh, anything that uh, that person consumes. So if they grow food on their own farm and then consume it, that's counted as part of their income. If they gather sticks from the wood, that, uh, that counts as part of their income as well. So we're 40 times richer. And then money goes about two and a half times as far just because of uh, cost of living and the fact that money goes further overseas. So that means that uh, if I were to just half my income, uh, I could double the income of 100 people in very poor countries. And as I said, the halving my income will reduce my happiness by a certain amount. Doubling the income of 100 people will increase that. Uh, each person's happiness by the same amount. So that means there's this kind of general theoretical argument for thinking that we can benefit people by 100 times as much um, as we can benefit ourselves. And then that seems to be backed up when we look at specific, uh, specific sorts of programs, like the cost to save a life. Um, in the US, we're willing to spend, like the government will uh, fund a program if it saves a life for about $7 million dollars. Uh, if you want to save a life in very poor countries, it costs you about three and a half thousand dollars by distributing bed nets by giving to the Against Malaria Foundation. Then you can also look at the track record of um, aid as well. So even if you just thought, okay, I'm just only going to be doing as much good as aid has done in the past, one argument you can look at is just to say, okay, well, supposing aid did no good at all, except insofar as it eradicated smallpox, um, a disease that uh, killed 300 million people um, before we eradicated it in 1973 and that saved the lives of uh, 60 to 120 million people since then. That's more lives than would have been saved if we'd achieved world peace in that period. If you do the math in terms of how much has been spent in aid in total 
and then how many lives have been saved, you get the conclusion and assume that AID had no impact at all except insofar as it eradicated smallpox, you get the conclusion that you have a cost per life saved of about $70,000, which is an exceptionally good deal. Um, in fact, again, 100 times better than uh, the US government is willing to spend to save a life in, uh, in the US. So we just have these multiple arguments for thinking that uh, development, and in particular, I think global health has the strongest kind of general case, but the development in general for the very poorest people in the world is this exceptionally powerful way to do good. So that's that's a very provocative, fascinating, and and really interesting. Uh, so there's a lot there to to, to think about. I, I want to try to unpack pack in, in maybe in a couple different a couple of different steps. So one challenge, of course, is that you know, most people would struggle to cut their income in half emotionally. It would just be a difficult sell, even if you mm-hmm. could tell them they're going to save a hundred lives. Um, but maybe not. I think. I think if you could actually save 100 lives, you you might be more interested in it. Uh, Doubling the income of excessively poor people to take them from, say, near starvation and possible death to um, a more comfortable standard of living, that's that's starting to get a little more realistic, I think, and a little more more appealing. Um, And obviously, we don't all have to cut our income in half to make that difference. We could cut it by, say, 10%, which is a... a proportion you're um, you've advocated for, and I'm I'm uh, I personally uh, think is a good thing um, as well. And we'll talk later about whether that's a good general rule or not. But but let's talk about that. Let's suppose let's take the fifty percent case. Let's suppose I mm-hmm. I voluntarily tax myself fifty percent. That is, I give half of my income away to uh, effective organizations that help transform people's lives. Mm-hmm. It's not. Um, of course, it's it's it it's only once that that payment. Uh, so it, you'd have to think about that as an ongoing payment to continue to transform their lives, unless you thought that by getting them over the hump or out of the subsistence case, they could start to stand on their own better. So if you're not, let me so let me make the case in an unappealing way mm-hmm. by cutting your income in half. Um, you can be a um, you can work for a hundred people and allow them to um, lead a better life, assuming they don't respond to that opportunity by reducing their own work effort. Um, you know, a lot of people have suggested we haven't. We had a fascinating episode with Chris Blattman on this. Have suggested we should give cash rather mm-hmm. than bed nets, rather than trying to build yeah. infrastructure. The, all kinds of different approaches we've taken. So mm-hmm. let's give cash. I don't. I'm not convinced that that would be a such a great transformative thing. Just like I wouldn't if 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 some rich people came to me and said, um, and I, of course I'm I'm in the global one percent. Mm-hmm. If they said to me, "Well, we're doing even better than you, so we're going to cut our income, and and you can you can what live better, even take it easy." I, it just doesn't. I don't see that transforming people's lives. Just giving them money. I I, I like saving them from starvation. Uh, but spending the rest of my life working 50% for a hundred poor people to keep them from starvation. If in fact, um, that's the only impact. And I worry about the, the consequences of that. It, it, are there, yeah. isn't it a little more complicated? Great. Uh, yeah, I think I'm really glad you asked this because I actually think it's something a lot of people are quite confused about when they think about the sorts of, you know, concrete measurable 
so exams. They say, okay, this is just a short-term thing. You um, cure someone of worms, but then that doesn't have this long-lasting impact. Uh, but the evidence suggests it's the opposite. So let's just talk about cash. So Give Directly is a charity I endorse very highly. Uh, and it just transfers cash to the poorest people in the world. So about $1,000 will double the income of uh, a house, very poor household for one year. Uh, and the question is, okay, well, what do they do with that? Is it just that they, you know, spend money on consumption and then they go back to the uh, kind of status quo, just back to where they were? In which case, that's great. They've, you know, you've benefited them for the year, that's but good. not had yeah. long-lasting change. And that would be true if there were this thing called a poverty trap where you can just be so poor that, um, you know, actually earning more doesn't really help get you out of that trap because you just need to keep spending money even just to stay, uh, stay afloat. Uh, but as far as I know, the evidence for that seems to be, um, there doesn't seem to be much evidence that there is such a thing as a poverty trap rather than just, you know, the more you're learning, you kind of, in the way you'd expect, there's just, uh, you have kind of better opportunities to um, improve improve your income. And in particular, when you look at Give Directly, that certainly seems to be the case. So when they make these cash transfers, they look at how do people spend their money, and some of the money goes on consumption. Um, but in fact, the majority of it goes on investment, uh, effectively saving, savings, where um, they spend the money on tin roofs, is the most common single purchase. So they only give money to people in thatch roofs because that's a very good indicator of extreme poverty. Uh, thatch roofs need to be replaced every couple of years, and it's just this ongoing expense. Whereas if they buy a tin roof, then it's, they effectively get a return on their investment of about 14% per year, which is so way better than anything we can get um, by you know putting it in the bank or even investing in the stock market. Uh, they also buy um, livestock as well, which is another... Uh, another sort of asset with ongoing uh, returns. And so given the way they spend that, it doesn't look at all like you're just doing this thing that you know makes them a bit better off for the year. In fact, it's this thing with this long-lasting compounding effect. And I think people often ignore this because it's much harder to see. So you can see immediately the consumption benefits. They are, uh, are able to eat more, um, have better quality of food, um, more micronutrients, but then you don't see the ripple effects from that. You don't see the fact that they're now going to be earning more over the course of um, their life, and the same is true of deworming, which then has like a multiplier effect on the whole economy uh, because you know that's much more diffuse. Uh, but that it just has to be an effect, um, and the evidence we've got from Give Directly seems to support that as well. And so I think if you think about this as just the short-term thing that doesn't have any long-lasting change, that's misunderstanding the situation. Yeah, I think you know, part of the challenge here, I want to go back to the original deworming study and the, the, failed, mm -hmm. the failed interventions, the textbooks, the mm -hmm. changes in class size, et cetera. And I think, um, I think a lot of people make mistakes in, in thinking about development or reforming education in a developed country, in a rich country mm -hmm. even – because they misunderstand the organic nature of, of, of life. In particular, mm -hmm. <laughs> you'd think, well, what could if you only have one textbook per class, ten would be better, twenty would be better. Well, it's not if the teacher doesn't show up, and it's not if yeah. if the teacher doesn't teach anything valuable when they do show up, and it's not if 
there aren't any jobs in the country because the labor market's messed up and there's bad mm-hmm. roads for trade and so on. And a lot of times correlations that we observe between certain interventions, not interventions, certain facts, certain certain correlated uh, things in life are just because they, they all tend to move together because there's some underlying thing that's helping such as, well, markets or whatever, mm-hmm. c- civil society, other culture, things that we can't we can't intervene on. We can't switch the lever in one side of one piece of this by itself and hope it's going to mm-hmm. make make any kind of a difference at all. You need to have all the stuff happen at once, and you can't do it all at once because it's stuff that has to emerge in its own time. It comes back to an example we've been talking about. I seem to be um, obsessed with, which is the example of the prairie. That to create a prairie, you have to have a set of things that happen at the right pace and in the right order. And to just put mm-hmm. one of them in place doesn't get you closer. And so when I think about uh, prosperity or getting out of poverty or avoiding a subsistence life, I think about this classic, you know, the classic story. Uh, if you give a, give a person a fish, they eat for a day. If you teach them how to fish, they eat for a lifetime. Uh, but as one of our listeners, I think, pointed out, and I've forgotten who it is, I'm sorry, but somebody pointed mm-hmm. out, if you can give, teach somebody to fish and give them access to markets where they can trade their fish for other things, you won't mm-hmm. just uh, have them eat well. They'll do more than eat well. They'll flourish. And I, I'm not sure that any of these individual pieces, I, I worry that, a, that they're not necessarily, that doesn't mean, they, doesn't mean they're not worth doing, obviously. And I, so I don't mean to be so pessimistic, but it seems to me that some of the value and return from it are, are going to be grossly overstated because we don't have all the pieces at once. Uh, yeah, so I think, um, I think you're onto a really good uh, point. Uh, I actually, that teach a man to fish is, I hate that slogan. Um, <laughs> Why? Why? Me, well, so Rachel Glenister, uh, who's the CEO of the Poverty Action Lab, and again involved in this wave of randomized control trials, one of her early experiences was going to Kenya and uh, seeing a charity that, there was a nomadic tribe and they tried to settle them on this on Lake Turkana, I think it was, and taught them to fish. And then there was overfishing and the fish stock got depleted. <laughs> there you go. Um, and well, it's a complicated the, place, yeah. And, and the lake dried up. Um, and if you gave them fish, maybe they could just sell the fish and then um, use the money for whatever that was actually best for them. Yeah. So uh, I think teaching a man to fish is as problematic as um, giving them fish. I think it's a metaphor. Let's treat it. It's a metaphor. <laughs> Give them a skill, but that's the question: is what skill? That's the challenge. And 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 if you say, well, let's let the um, the person decide for themselves. The question is, why haven't they? What's stopping people from acquiring the skills that they would need to to thrive? And the answer: there are many possible answers. Uh, but if you don't know the answer to that, you probably can't help them so effectively. Yeah. So one thing is just so I think extreme poverty is just very different from domestic poverty. Where extreme poverty, the you know people living on that um, income level just don't have productive opportunities, the same sort of productive opportunities uh, that we have in rich countries always, and it's not because they're poor, because uh, you know of anything to do with them. It's not like you know mental illness or substance abuse issues, um, which can be the case in among very poor. Uh, domestically. Uh, instead, it's just like they've got this starting like very small um, amount of income. 
And they have, if you give them more income, these amazing opportunities to um, invest that and improve and kind of improve their lives. Um, and I guess uh, you do get some effect where, you know, they're also in a country with often poor institutions, poor infrastructure. Um, and so maybe the kind of multiplier effect that you get um, just by adding kind of one dollar of wealth to that country is less than it is in the US. Uh, but it's still significant. It's still not the case that um, just by making them a little bit richer, then you're just going to kind of return to the status quo ante. And I think it's true that we don't really know what drives growth. Um, that's an unsolved problem. But overall, if you think, look, people are just going to know on average and on balance you know, kind of what's better for them. And if they're made richer, um, especially through something like GiveDirectly has, you know, cash transfers have extensive evidence behind them from many different countries, then that, you know, I'm sure something you'll sim be sympathetic to, that normal operation of markets where they're able to just use their money and spend it in whatever way will be best, that will org organically solve these uh, kind of cool, these problems of only solving one part of the pie at one time that you kind of reference with respect to textbooks not being useful if teachers don't show up and so on. That's because there's just so much local knowledge. You know, there's a failure of knowledge on the part of the people trying to help. Whereas right. if you're just giving cash to uh, giving cash to the very poor people, they have that local knowledge and they can um, take that into account when then they're spending their money. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think obviously, and you cleverly played in my biases. Oh, <laughs> I thought that was that was very skillful. But but I think the I think for me, I think the realistic upside is ameliorating suffering, trying to reduce the amount of suffering. I, I think it's overly optimistic to think that. Giving people, ca I, I like the idea of giving people cash rather than giving them a play pump. I think that's a that's a big step forward. I think giving people cash in hopes that they will use it in ways that will enhance the their their productivity and prosperity is is going to be limited by the inherent situation that many poor people find themselves in. And and I I think it's got some positives, um, but I also worry about you know again the incentive effects that it'll have. Um, but certainly to keep people from starving to death is a good thing. I'm all for that. Let's – Yeah. Let's and if you just look at the history of AIDS, I mean, uh, people often talk about it having no impact. But, um, you know, over the course of the last 50, 60 years, we've spent what's comparatively a tiny amount of money, like $20 per person um, uh, per year. So really a very small amount of money. Uh, and life expectancy has increased by a third. Uh, childhood mortality is like absolutely minuscule compared to what it was. And AIDS can't really account for, you know, can't claim credit for all of that, probably not uh, not for most of it either. But actually, if you just look at the history of economic progress, it's been overall and on average, incredible success story among um, poor countries. Uh, the percentage of people living in extreme poverty is half what it was uh, just a few decades ago. And so I think that gives us ground for optimism as well. Um, well I'm this not, isn't just an ongoing problem. Yeah, I'm yeah. not convinced, um, although I, I have to admit that your example of smallpox did give me pause. I think it was a great example. Your basic argument, just to, re, to, mm -hmm. re, to restate it, is that, sure, maybe a lot of aid money is wasted. Well, and of course, it could be worse than mm -hmm. wasted. It could be enhancing dictators' power and worse. But let's just say it's wasted. Uh, but one success can have such an enormous impact – 
that it's that it's worth it. And I think the natural thought that that comes through your book and I think comes to people's minds is as well. So let's just do the good ones. And that's mm-hmm. the, that's the hope that the a more scientific approach, uh, more evidence based approach, I would call it to yeah. how we spend our money might lead us to to be uh, more optimistic. But it might not be true. I mean, it's it's a little it reminds me a little bit of when people talk about buying index mutual funds. You know, you buy an index mutual fund, you're buying a whole bunch of stocks. Some of them go up a lot. Some go up a little. Some go down. Mm-hmm. And a naive person says, well, let's just pick the ones that are good. Let's just pick the good ones. Well, we, mm-hmm. don't, we don't know how to do that in the stock market. And I wonder if we are able to do it in the development world. And in particular, maybe the smallpox thing was just lucky. You know, what's the evidence that we're going to do better with the next trillion dollars or that we're going to achieve now that smallpox, is, thank God, is, is eradicated mostly uh, – that we're going to be able to find something like that again. Now, I'm I'm on your side for sure in in saying that uh, it's a small you know a small amount of money toward a a uh, a big possible improvement. It's worth spending because there's you know the, that's your expected value argument, which I find very persuasive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just it's just not obvious to me. We know a lot about how to do that well. Yeah, I think there's a couple of responses. One is uh, the fact that we do have many other examples. So. The progress on measles, especially in global health, it's just so clear in global health. So, and even the AIDS skeptics, even chief among the AIDS skeptics, Bill Easterly, writes this book, White's Man's Burden: Why AIDS Has Done So Much Harm and So Little Good, and he just lambasts AIDS over and over and over again, and then spends a couple of pages on global health, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, global health is awesome and it's amazing and it's changed millions of people's lives for the better," and then moves on again to being critical. Uh, and so, even the chief among the Aid skeptics are just very positive about um, global health. Um, and we can look at progress on measles, polio, um, guinea worm, uh, also, also malaria, uh, tuberculosis. And it's just, we've made vast improvements. And, uh, you know, public funding, like through the World Health Organization, Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, has clearly been a part of that. Um, then as to whether, like, we can, we can just pick the best, uh, like I really like the stocks example, and you know I think we should be very humble about our ability to uh, do things that are best. I think we should always have the understanding that what we might be funding is just perhaps it turns out to be uh, not at all um, effective. But there is a difference because the stock market's an efficient market. The reason you can't pick the winners is because there's already so many people out there who are already trying to pick the winners. Um, and that means that uh, the price reflects the value of the stock. In contrast, when it comes to charity or doing good, there there just isn't really the same sort of efficient market. Um, there's some people who are out there trying to do loads of good, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, let's say. And that means, I think, that you can't pick the very best. So I think maybe immunization programs like polio um, vaccination uh, if no one else were funding them, they'd perhaps be even more effective than distributing bed nets or deworming. So an extent you, uh, to some extent, you can't pick the, pe- the very, very best winners. But that's okay. It's just that they've already been funded. That's a good thing for the world. But it's not the case that we use vast amount of funders all wanting to do as much good as they could. Instead, uh, there just does seem to be this low-hanging fruit um, on the ground, and it's because the charity world and the philanthropic and... Uh, aid spending just 
doesn't have the same sort of efficient market as the stock market has. Yeah, and one of the reasons is is that we don't have the data that we have for stocks that allow us to arbitrage. We don't have earnings data. We don't have the equivalent of it. And again, it's a complexity issue. Uh, I'm going to pick on bed nets for a second, but you know, bed nets. Bed nets are things that help people get stop being uh, keep them from being bitten by mosquitoes that carry malaria, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, but for better or for worse, a lot of people who are given bed nets use them as fishing nets because they think that's the best use. That's the local knowledge, or some people do. I don't know what the number. We don't know what the numbers are. I have no problem with giving people a fishing net. Um, you know, if if that's mm. what they think is best to do with it. There may be some issues there, but, you know, children, et cetera. But uh, I think most people love their children, and they're probably more worried about feeding them than keeping them malaria-free, I guess. But um, I do think there's this complexity issue that that relentlessly makes this challenging. So I, I want to segue to a, a related point yep. that will let – you can come back on that if you want because this will – this will. but I want to make sure we touch on this. Yeah, let's when, segue. When you talk about um, – your career choice, you make the point, which is mm-hmm. a beautiful point. That you have 80,000 hours approximately of work to do in your life. Why don't you just put some time into making sure it's time well spent and not just for yourself but for other people? Um, and one of the options that you suggest is what you call earning to give. So talk about that, and then I'll, I'll circle back on these, on these issues of, of uncertainty. Talk about Great. what earning to give is and, and why it may be a good idea. Terrific. So earning to give is the idea of deliberately taking – a lucrative career in order that you can do good through your ability to donate rather than through your direct contribution of your labor. So when most people think about careers that make a difference, they think about careers in the nonprofit sector or maybe in social work. Uh, They think about careers where you're directly helping people. And I just think that's too narrow. There's, uh, you can, sure, you can benefit people through the direct impact of your labor. You could also benefit people through your ability to advocate in a position. So Martin Luther King didn't work for the charity, but he had um, standing that allowed him to advocate for this incredibly important cause. And you can do good through your ability to donate. And for some people, um, I think maybe kind of 15% of people or something, uh, it might well, I think, yeah, it might well be the best path for them to uh, take this higher learning career doing good through your donations. Um, in particular, if you have a comparative advantage in um, just earning more, um, particular skills that are very well paid but not that useful in the charity sector. And I think there are a few other arguments for this as well. So one is that, yeah, you can target your money to the very most effective charities. Second is that your money is as a flexibility that um, direct your kind of direct contributions of your labor um, doesn't have. So if you the evidence changes in 10 years' time and suddenly very different things are the most effective. Um, then with money, you can switch that quite easily. Um, with labor, it's much more difficult. Uh, and then finally, it's just this boring pragmatic reason of even if you want to work in the nonprofit sector, uh, I think a very good thing to do in the short term is to build up your business skills in for-profit organizations. And that's not that contrarian of you. I've interviewed a large number of leaders in nonprofit organizations. Um, and the majority of them say a similar thing, is that you know when you're coming out of college, you just don't have that many skills. Yeah. Um, what you need to do is first kind of level up, build Tool up yourself. Up. Yeah, exactly. And so that means I think it's often a good idea for people to try this for a few years. You can 
work in some uh, elite organization, you know, work in consulting or um, maybe some areas of finance uh, or programming or uh, a variety of other careers. You can do good through your ability to donate in the meantime and then also build amazing skills. And then depending on how things look after a few years, you can then take those skills to the nonprofit sector or the public sector, uh, or you can continue in that path doing good just through your donations. Well, what leads to optimism for me is that if you think about, right, that you can take that earning to give idea and you can just say, look, you didn't choose earning to give. You chose a career that you just liked. Mm -hmm. Forget whether it was for the, in the nonprofit sector. You just chose mm -hmm. what you enjoyed. So you took that job, but you are still free to increase the amount you donate. And to come back to our earlier discussion, uh, I've talked about this before. According to Jewish law, you should give 10% of your of mm -hmm. your income to uh, to charity. Uh, and and unless you're rich, you shouldn't give more than 20. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. you push against that. But because uh, there's a chance that you'll be – you could fall back to being needy yourself is the argument that, okay. that, that it's made. But so most people don't give 10. So you know, if we could get people to give 10, my first thought is, well, is that really going to change the world? And I, and I think – the answer I get from you is, well, it could if you spend it smartly, if you just continue to just sort mm -hmm. of spread it around to things that sound okay. So even if – take my skepticism uh, – take my skepticism with a grain of salt. Take my grain of salt with a grain mm -hmm. of salt. Say, okay, mm -hmm. so it won't do quite – if we you know, if we doubled the amount that we spend deworming, we double the amount on bed nets or quadruple it even or five-fold increase it because we can get people to give more. Maybe it won't have the impact we hope, but – We'd learn from that ideally, according to the approach you're encouraging, and we'd mm -hmm. do something else with it. And I think that's really a, a really positive vision. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and that's right. I do uh, say some I mean, nice things well, from time to time. <laughs> I know. I was, I was like, where, where's the kind of uh, decisive objection going to come? Um, and then it never did. No, not that time. Uh, yeah. I mean, one thing you said was, you know, is giving 10% going to change the world? And I think that's not. Again, there's a framing that is quite common of just, well, that's not going to solve the problem. Or they right. think, and this is, again, I think, I think a failure to think about, on the, think on the margin. You know, when I say people should give 10% or more of their income to causes that fight poverty, that people often say, well, what if everyone did that? Like, would that be the best thing overall? And that's like an interesting thing to think about. But when you're making a decision, you should just think, well, what's the best thing to do given how everyone else is, rather than yep. asking, well, what if absolutely everyone did this? If they all do it, you can consider cutting back to nine. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah, maybe that's exactly right. Or if everyone was doing this, maybe then you can just, you know, if everyone in the United States was giving 10% to the most effective charities, that probably also means that you could easily pass through a whole ton of legislation that would also benefit people in very poor countries in a way that it would be extremely difficult to do just now. And so... The way things look when everyone does something is often quite different from how things look when it's just one person ad adding your piece. And the fact that a certain action won't solve the problem is totally irrelevant. It's, uh, it's not the size of the bucket that matters. It's you know, how big a drop in that bucket you're making. And if you can save hundreds of lives over your lifetime, well, that's a really pretty massive, um, massive drop, a massive impact. Uh, and yeah, then the second thing I thought was just, again, in terms of funding, I mean, if everyone started to donate 10%, then uh, we'd 
we get through the available room for more funding for bed nets and deworming pretty quickly, in fact. Um, and then it would be moving on to the next thing and the next thing. And probably a large chunk of that would be wanting to fund, you know, significant maps of further research to try to find more of these opportunities that are as good. But one of the things that's most exciting about cash transfers is just how much room for scale they have. So I think after the few billion dollars, um, we'll get pretty quickly through the number of bed nets and deep, you know, everyone will be dewormed, everyone will have a bed net over their head. Um, so maybe it's tens of billions of dollars. With cash transfers, you could scale that up massively, just almost indefinitely, I think. Um, and that's one of these things that's really exciting about GiveDirectly as a program. It's got the potential to really change the, the landscape of international development. Well, I'd, again, I'd worry a little bit about the, or a lot about the, what the magnitude, what the consequences of that are that maybe are not so obvious when you're just doing it on a very small scale, but might be worth yeah. finding out. Um, while I'm on the cheerful side, um, why, don't you talk about, why don't you talk about what's good about sweatshops, uh, one of the more, I suspect, controversial chapters in your book? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of, a number of campaigns about boycotting sweatshops. Uh, so sweatshops are, uh, pretty horrific places to work. Basically, everyone agrees on that. People there work 14-hour uh, days. Um, you know, it's fairly hot conditions. Uh, you often don't get kind of meal breaks. Uh, and people, very, and they're making clothes that are then you know, bought in the West. And people very naturally feel quite horrified at that. They think, oh, how terrible it is that anyone has to work in those conditions. And then they want to respond by removing themselves from that situation, having kind of no part in it by not buying those clothes. And instead buying from somewhere like American Apparel, which kind of boasts to be sweatshop free, only uh, produce, uh, only use workers in the United States who are kind of paid um, very well comparatively. But I think that's a mistake. And the mistake is just to not appreciate just how bad extreme poverty is. And in fact, it's so bad that sweat, these sweatshop jobs are actually really desirable places to work compared tragically. to the alternatives. Tragically, tragically but, absolutely yeah. tragically, these horrific conditions can be the best um, options because the alternatives are unemployment, um, which can mean, you know, starvation, uh, prostitution, backbreaking farm labor that's far more poorly paid, scavenging um, and garbage scaven dumps, scavenging yeah. and dumps, exactly, and. When you actually ask, um, you know, the very poor, they say, yeah, well, at least this is a job. You know, this is, I'm not out in the sun all day where, um, you know, it's sweltering. I'm being paid much more. And you can look at the evidence of this, just um, the people who are choosing to work there and not only choosing to work there, but also, um, you know, immigrating across borders, risking de deportation in order to take these jobs because they're higher paying. And... I think that urge to say, oh, well, I don't want to have any part of that is not appreciating that in doing so, you're taking away the best job opportunities that um, these people have. And so I think the right response is uh, to try to end the underlying poverty that makes these sweatshop conditions, these sweatshop factories, uh, comparatively desirable places to work. And I think that means engaging in trade with very poor countries. Um, and then secondly, yeah, using our position, um, our wealth in order to 
fight poverty to try and end, end those conditions. But boycotting is just going to be counterproductive. So effective altruism has gotten a lot of criticism from the left, uh, both the mild left and the hard left, uh, that it if you sp- – spend all this energy giving away money and trying to solve the world's problems through the cooperative means, private, uncoerced, voluntary cooperative means, you're going to discourage uh, political solutions that might otherwise be more effective. Now, I'm a skeptical. I'm even more skeptical about that. So one of the things that I love about effective altruism is it does at least open the possibility of a civil society, of a solutions to cooperative voluntary solutions to problems that that when they if they don't work we can change the approach as we've talked about mm-hmm. uh, but what has been your uh dealings with the people who who urge uh who critical criticize the movement on those political grounds what's your response to them yeah so this is a objection that we have received a, a bunch and so i'm intuitively a big lefty a member attending meetings of the socialist workers party uh um, as a recent graduate and so on. Um, and, you know, that makes me just personally very inclined to really understand this objection. And I think, so there's a few things I can say. So one is just, yeah, maybe political change is even better. But if you think of that as easy, then you're definitely mistaken. If you think that political change is obvious, yeah, I mean, because... Um, you're well, ruining we, my, my utopian pipe dream. Go, go, <laughs> don't publish that book. Um yeah, I mean, if we think, I mean, like looking at the history of communism is the starkest example of that where you have a certain vision, um, which is maybe a very compelling um, vision, and you decide to bring that about and the consequences are disastrous. Um, and so if you, you know, I'm worried about unintended consequences when it comes to these very simple things like deworming school children. When it comes to political change, there's much greater potential there. So that's the first thing is just that it's not obvious. Secondly, and this isn't often explicitly stated, but I think um, I do think actually underlies often a lot of the disagreement is what you think about uh, the causes of poverty. So, uh, in and what you think about. Um, so, I hate ever using the word capitalism because um, it seems to be so multiply ambiguous. Um, but what you think about the sorts of economies we have, like the UK and the US, that are, um, you know, mixed economies, but with a strong free market element, private property, and so on. And if you look at the history of human progress, the fact that there's any countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, is this sort of miracle. The, the state of the world, for most of human history, is everyone living on less than $2 per day. And then it's only in the last few hundred years. Yeah. Um, that some countries have been able to escape that. And, you know, where this these monkeys walking around in suits um, trying to make our lives better? The fact that we've got to this stage is this absolutely miraculous yeah, thing. absolutely. Um, and moreover, in the last 50 years, if you look at China, India, um, uh, if you look at uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Taiwan um, there's so many countries that have then escaped um, from global poverty and are now... Uh, uh, these kind of economic powerhouses. Um, and that's been through um, the same sort of economic development that happened in the US and the UK. So I think often the kind of criticism on the left, they see 
and I, I really don't want to straw man the position, but this is maybe the conclusion I came to through deeper conversations. They see things as this fixed pie where you've got the rich countries just being rich by taking from poor countries. Um, and I just think that misrepresents the situation, which is that um, to begin with, everyone's really poor. Then some countries have um, had amazing economic success. Uh, and for sure, some of that was based on really pretty horrific, um, you know, every country has, exploitation. Yeah, exploitation. Sure. That's right. Every country has like a horrific past. And I think that gives a strong argument for us to think that the resources we earn like are not really our own and we should uh, redistribute them. But we've had like amazing economic success. And the question is just how can we get more of that? And so I think the objection does come down to a deep kind of empirical one actually about what you think is, you know, going on with uh, capitalism. So when I see all the problems in the world, I think of like the ability of markets in some, in some or many circumstances to do a huge amount of good. Um, and then when I think like what are the big problems with the current world order that we need to change, that's like quite low down on the list. Um, whereas they see this as like, this is the problem, capital, like capitalism is just taking from the poor countries and feeding the rich countries. And I just think that's a mistake. I think it's just the default state is being poor and uh, actually the trade that, exi- that happens, such as even through sweatshops, is benefiting both parties. So let me close with a story um, uh, in, in, uh, in praise of effective altruism. I, uh, as you know, Will, I saw you speak uh, in California a month or so ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was invited. Google had a conference on effective altruism, hosted a conference on effective altruism. Uh, Roughly how many people were there? Uh, 450 people at that conference. And how many were at the one the year before? Uh, The one the year before, there was, I think, less than a third of that. So it's, it's it's grabbing some people's attention. And when, as I sat in the audience uh, for that event, uh, happily uh, tweeting as I listened to your uh, <laughs> keynote, opening keynote address and, and, and carrying my um, effective altruism T-shirt and my, uh, that I had been given an <laughs> entry, which my teenage children told me was the coolest T-shirt I owned. So I just want to <laughs> – so that's just a side benefit. I'm, that's not my focus, but I did want to mention that. In, in terms of swag, it's very good swag. And, and they gave me a copy of your book, which I already had, but that was okay. Um, so – Sitting in the audience, and the thing that struck me, besides you, you did a great job, was an entertaining talk, and it covered some of the ground we talked about today. But one of the things that struck me was uh, the first thing that struck me was how many, how young the audience was. I think I was sitting next to a high school student who had come from, uh, or I talked to a high school student. I sat next to a college student. And I was, uh, I later chatted with a high school student who had come. Uh, this was in the summer before his being a freshman in college. He wanted to make sure he spent his life well. And there's something incredibly inspiring about a room of people in their 20s desperate to make the world a better place. It's, um, it was really very moving. And it, and it forced me to think about my own life and whether I'm doing the right thing with my own time. I think it's something any thoughtful person should think about. And mm-hmm. we didn't get to to cover it very much, but your organization, 80,000 Hours, deals with that. We'll put a link up to it. Um, and I certainly uh, applaud the idea that you should choose your career carefully for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but I started to wonder, am I doing 
is is the way I spend my time. Am I doing it as productively as possible in terms of having an impact on the world? And I managed to convince myself that econ talks a good use of my time. <laughs> um, I made a transition out of classroom teaching to spending more time on econ talk, and I think I think by the criteria that you talk about, I think I'm reaching more people. I don't know if I'm reaching them as deeply as you can in an intense semester long class, but but the impact, um, but the numbers effect is is so large with econ talk. But mm-hmm. when I confronted it, I was forced to to think about the fact that maybe I could be doing better. Um, maybe there's something else I should be doing. Maybe I should be doing something else to spread economic education or do something entirely different. And mm-hmm. uh, one of the things that I concluded was I need to spend some time trying, trying to expand EconTalk's audience. So I, I think EconTalk does some good, for, I hope, does some good for the world, but I would think it could do more good if it reached more people. So I asked the audience to help me, uh, you out there listening, think about ways you might help me expand EconTalk's reach. And I want to let Will, I want to let you have the last word. Uh, either you can say something about EconTalk or you can encourage people and think in ways to think about uh, effective altruism. Uh, yeah, well, like I say, there's many ways to do good. Uh, so your direct labor is one, but as I say, um, your ability to uh, advocate and promote important causes um, is another. And if you can use Econ Talk in that platform and as a platform for doing so, and then reach as many people as you can by doing so, then you know that's a very promising way to do good. Uh, I have to. Should, I, I forgot to mention. I I am worried that given it's what I already do, that I might be fooling myself. So I'm aware of that. I, I'm, I, am, <laughs> I know you I've want, got a confirmation bias problem here. You want to be constantly uh, you know, self-critical um, about you know, the risks of just del- you know, being biased, deluding yourself. And uh, you know, one thing you should certainly think about is you know, how you're spending your money as well. You're already in the, as you said, you're already in the 1%. And could you do more by donating more or uh, donate? donating what you do have more effectively. It's a very clear way of doing good. And so for everyone listening, I think there's, if you're feeling like, yeah, okay, I'm feeling kind of inspired. I really want to, I think I can use my life to you know, make a much bigger impact than I thought possible before. Uh, let's do it. Then there's, I think, a few things to do. So uh, one, the most simplest thing to get yourself in the mood of doing good, I think, is to start donating regularly. To begin with, it doesn't really matter how much that is, but it gets you in the habit of uh, making a big impact. If you want to look, know where the best charities to donate to are, uh, go to givewell.org. They have outstanding uh, charity recommendations, including many of the charities we've talked about. If you're thinking of going further and making a commitment, uh, givingwhatwecan.org, uh, one of the nonprofits I co-founded, uh, is a society of people who are giving at least 10% of their income. Uh, and if you feel like that's too much at the moment, you can do a tryout giving where you gradually increase your income up and increase your donations up until that point. Uh, if you're thinking you want to do good with your time, um, perhaps you've got a career decision coming up, then 80,000hours.org is the, uh, another nonprofit I set up that's trying to be like GiveWell, but for choice of careers so that you can work out what the careers where you have the biggest impact. And we have like a quiz that you can take that makes some recommendations of things to, for you to think about. Uh, and then finally, you can just join the Effective Altruism community. So there's a Facebook group, um, Effective Altruists Facebook group, uh, and then also on EffectiveAltruism.org, you can sign up to a mailing list and uh, find out about 
any local groups that there are, because people with shared interests um, in local groups all around the country uh, tend to get together, have meetups, go to talks, um, discuss some of these ideas. And in general, what you should think is just, okay, this is going to be, you know, a potential to have a really huge impact in the world. What are the first steps I can take that will ensure I take further steps in the future? Um, and just think of it as just this really exciting opportunity. Uh, if you were someone who could, who kind of ran into a burning building and saved a child's life, you'd feel like a hero. You'd feel really pretty good about yourself. You have that opportunity to do that um, every year or every few years um, if you just choose to use your time and money wisely. Uh, and I think that's a really exciting thing to be able to do. My guest today has been Will McCaskill. His book is Doing Good Better. Will, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.